Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're speaking today about a topic, well, it's a topic that's not an easy one to discuss, and it is not a exclusively Native topic. It is a topic that affects people's whole person health across the entire global population. Of course, it's something that affects Indian country, but affects every demographic group. We're talking about a subject that uh, sometimes is hard to know how to speak about it in a, well, in an encouraging, in a positive way. It is the subject of child abuse. We have an expert on the topic today, Dr. David Sedlacek. David, it's great to have you with us. Thank you, David. David, I know you have written, you've published uh, on this topic. You are a professor of family ministry at Andrews University in Berrien Springs, Michigan. And this is a topic that's very close to your heart. Uh, tell us a little bit about why someone who, you know, with a doctorate teaching the university, you could be researching all kinds of things. Why have you spent so much time on this particular topic? One of the reasons why I'm passionate about the topic of healing childhood abuse is that I and my family members, as well as many others that I know, have been victims of childhood abuse. Mm. And and so this is not just something academic for me, David. It is something that is very, very personal. It's a part of my own journey, a part of my own story, part of my own healing. And, and that's why I'm very passionate about this topic. David, this is powerful. And I, I know so many times when we talk about, we've featured it here on American Indian and Alaska Native Living in multiple ways, talking about these adverse childhood experiences, how that seems to stack the deck against someone as they're growing up. And yet, I think it's exciting. We've had Native leaders on this show who've been open with sharing stories, just like you're sharing now. We've had people from other backgrounds that have shared how they had some real serious uh, emotional, physical things that happened to them early in life, but they still were able to be successful. To me, your story is empowering, and I really appreciate you being willing to be vulnerable enough to share your life with us today. Well, thank you. I'm happy to do that. And it sounds like you have already covered a lot of the adverse childhood experiences and what they are and so forth. And, and for me, there, there are a couple of those that, that stand out in my own journey. One of them is something very common research shares with, with our Native brothers and sisters. And, and that is, I was raised with an alcoholic father. Now, my dad was the kind of drinker who he did not get sloppy drunk. You know, any dad was very much in control. And yet, um, during the course of his life, as he came toward his later adulthood, the doctor said to him, you know, um, you had better stop drinking or else your liver is going to give out. And you also have a heart condition and and the excessive drinking has taken its toll over the years. And so you had better stop. What did my dad do? Well, my dad stopped. 
And just like that, he just stopped drinking. Now, he never went to a recovery program, never went to AA, never got help of any kind. He just stopped. And how do you think that went, huh? I appreciate you sharing this because, you know, we have these stereotypes about what it takes to stop addictive behaviors, and nobody wants to undermine the power of uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or any of these 12-step programs. They've really been powerful in many people's lives, but I appreciate you illustrating the fact that some people, something speaks to them, whether it's the creator, whether it's a doctor, whether it's just a, a moral sense, whatever it might be, you know, so-called hitting rock bottom, whatever the scenario is, and they can walk away from these addictive habits. But having said that, I think one of the concerns that some of us are listening for in your story is sometimes we hear that people make a break with something, but then they may fill it with something that may not be uh, all that beneficial. So like the rest of my listeners, we're interested to hear where this story goes from this point. Yeah. So is there a difference between being abstinent and being sober? Mm. You know, in, in the field of recovery, and I've been working in the field of addiction, and that's another whole story for almost 50 years now. And so my dad stopped drinking, but with no recovery on board, he had no internal change. Mm. And when you know about addiction, a lot of times addictions they try to cover or mask our pain, you know, and dad had no, dad had no way now of masking his pain. So his pain came out in being very angry and controlling and abusive in his language. And, and so that was the experience of my family after dad got sober. So he was what we call the classic dry drunk you know, where he was dry, he wasn't drinking, but he certainly was not growing and didn't, you know, did not address his own, if you will, childhood abuse issues. And that's how it manifested itself in, in dad's life. And it got to the point, honestly, where a lot of my siblings, dad would always try to demean them and correct them and do all of those kind of fatherly things, but he didn't do it in a grace-filled way. And it got to the point where a lot of my siblings really wouldn't even go around dad anymore. And he complained, you know, before he died at the age of 95, that he was lonely because people would not talk to him, wouldn't come because he would always not treat them well. So, so unfortunately, he died a fairly lonely man in a nursing home. You know, again, we would, you know, some of us would be there and try to help from a distance as much as we could because I was not living nearby at the time. but. But he would always complain that it was a fairly lonely existence for him at that point. So I'm really trying to process what you're sharing. I'm hearing as I listen to your story, David, that your life as growing up in the home might have been easier while your father was drinking than when he walked away from the alcohol, or is that not uh, getting the, the, the whole picture? Well, in many ways, that was true. In my own journey, I left home at age 13, and I spent seven years studying to be uh, a Catholic priest. And, and so I was gone more than I was home. Of course, I was home on you know vacations and during the summertime. And, but even when dad was drinking, 
he was still very much in control. And what I learned from my experience of dad, again, I was raised on a farm, Catholic family. I'm number two, the oldest boy of 15 children. So I have wow. nine sisters and five brothers. And, and, and so the, the picture was this of my family dynamic. Dad was in control. He was the one who worked. He had a job outside the farm. Um, and, and of course we were raised and we had cows and stuff to milk. And so, so I worked really hard on the family, you know, bailing hay, putting up crops, you know, milking cows. And so love for me was connected to performance, to working mm -hmm. hard. And so those were positive values that I learned working hard and all of that. But, but love being connected with that was not an asset. And, and so what I learned is my value is not just in who I was. My value was in performing, in pleasing dad, in doing the things that pleased him. Because when I didn't work hard enough, I heard about that. that there's something wrong with you, that you're not a good enough son, that you're not a hard enough worker, you know. And, and so I learned to equate my lovability with what I did. And honestly, David, I even transposed that into my relationship with other people and even with God, you know, that, mm. that if I did it well enough, if I performed well enough, then I would be pleasing to other people and pleasing even to God. And so I learned how to, how to put on this mask, how to project, you know, that I was this perfect person. And I had, I learned I had to be perfect and I, I was not allowed to have feelings even because mm. that would make dad have to be connected with his feelings and that of course was not something he wanted to do either because he had he was filled with a lot of pain as well so that's kind of the profile of what I learned to live with and how how I learned to project myself to other people so I know Dr. Sedlacek you've worked with a lot of people one-on-one -on -one. you've you know worked with groups you're a teacher at a university as people share their own stories with you uh, of abuse, of challenges in the home life, on what level do you feel that you resonate with them? And what kind of common themes might have affected, well, let's say even some of my listeners who say, well, I never suffered abuse in the home. I don't know what these people are talking about. Is this a lot more common even than sometimes we recognize? Well, what research shows is that about two-thirds of the population have at least one of these adverse childhood experiences. So it is very, very common. And, and when I hear stories, what happens inside of me as a listener is compassion. Mm. And I have this ability to have compassion because I've been there too. Mm -hmm. I never assume that I know their story because I've not walked in their shoes. And yet compassion allows me to feel their suffering, to feel their pain. And that allows me to journey with them on whatever their goals are for their journey of recovery. And so what I try to be, David, is I try to be an empathic witness, someone who can can feel with them, who can really listen and not just hear their words, but I can also feel their heart. Hmm. And to me, that is very sacred ground 
Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. sacred ground. To be allowed into someone's life story is a sacred part of their journey. And, and I would suspect that, that our Native listeners could really resonate with the sacredness of, of someone else's story. I, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, no question. No question. So let's talk a little bit more about you, because, you know, we're listening. We say, well, this guy is teaching at—he's uh, not teaching at a Catholic university, if anyone knows Andrews University. Uh, but you left home at 13, you said, to study to become a priest. Break that down and, and how your family of origin shaped some of those early decisions and then how you ended up where you are today. Okay. Well, every Catholic family wants a son to be a priest, you know. And, and so I was living out the expectation of my family. And I was happy to do that because there is status, you know, in living as a religious uh, person like that. And so so I, w- I went away to study to be uh, a priest and living out my perfectionism, I was voted for my first two years model seminarian. Wow. Because I looked so good. I was living out my family script. And so I stayed, you know, for seven years, you know, studying to be a priest. And I was very sincere. I loved God. I had learned to love God as best I could from a performance base, you know, mm. very, very young. And and so I wasn't faking. It was very genuine and real. And I've always carried that with me. And by the way, my parents loved God too. I would watch them kneel and pray. And they really uh-huh. lived out their faith as faithful, faithful, you know, Catholics, you know, lovers of God. And so, but toward the end of the seven years, I recognized that I wanted to be married. Hmm. And so I decided to take a leave of absence and, and, you know, of course they granted it, and, but I never went back, but I knew I wanted to be married. And so I began, you know, exploring that possibility. And, and so I was introduced by one of my roommates at the time. We want to hear more of this. You've definitely got us on the edge of our seats, but uh, somehow the clock always seems to win. And right now we have to just step away briefly. We're talking with Dr. David Sedlacek. I'm Dr. David DeRose, and we're hearing an amazing life story. Whether you're relating to it or not, I think you're going to see, as David shares more pieces in this story, it really applies to every one of us. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. 
Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I am Dr. David DeRose. My guest today, Dr. David Sedlacek. Dr. Sedlacek is a professor at Andrews University in Berrien Springs, Michigan. He especially works in the area of family life. And we're talking about one of the more challenging family life stressors that many of us have experienced. That's challenges in our home of origin. David shared with us in the previous segment that uh, somewhere around two out of three of us have significant what we call adverse childhood experiences that we're still carrying in some sense of the word around with us as we go about our adult lives, or if you're younger than an adult, your uh, teenage life or whatever it might be today. David, you were sharing your own story, talking about how you found yourself really wanting to be close to the Creator, following that uh, that path. Uh, you were raised in a Catholic family and going, studying to be a priest, I think most of us, whether we have any Catholic background or not, we realize that, at least in America, I mean, the only Catholicism I know, I've heard there's some exceptions, but generally priests take this uh, vow of celibacy, and uh, you were thinking, this is not the way you're headed. So bring us up to speed, and what happened from there? Yeah, you know, I was questioning my vocation to the priesthood toward the end of Mm -hmm. my time in the seminary, and made a decision that I would leave. and. And I was looking to see, you know, God, I want to be married, you know. And and so I was introduced to this young woman and, and uh, you know, wanted to be married. And, and I, I had this kind of Superman, uh, I can fix her kind of uh, thinking in my mind at that point. And uh, I learned that that doesn't work. Um. I don't know. What do you think? Does that work? You know, David, it's interesting you asked that question because as a health professional, 
I've seen so many, I mean, the stereotype, and again, it's a stereotype, but the stereotype is the nurse who falls in love with this very needy patient and they try to fix them. And well, if the person isn't fixed before the relationship starts, uh, in my experience, it's often going to be a problem because the person could just say, hey, you knew what I was like before you married me. If you didn't like that, why did you marry me? I, I don't know if, if that kind of dynamic is, is common, but it's one that I've seen played out quite a bit. Well, it's common, but it certainly was common for me because I was not in a, in a recovery place myself. I didn't know those things at that point. So, so I'm, num- I'm the number two child and number two children tend to take on the unresolved issues of the mother. Mm. Now, my mother... Remember, my dad was in control. My mother had no voice. She lived as a victim. Dad was managing and telling her what to do. And she was quietly, passive aggressively living and having babies. Okay. So, so now, who do you think I would be attracted to since I'm number two, living up my mother's script? I would be attracted to someone like my father. Hmm. Now, I didn't know this at the time. But I married a young woman who was um, who had a history of addiction that I did not know at the time because she wasn't drinking then. And she was also verbally abusive, very much like my father. Wow. And yet, when we got close to being married, I saw that about her. I, not the addiction part, but she certainly did not speak to me kindly. Uh-huh. And... And I can remember, David, this, that um, before, we, before we got married, I heard a voice clearly saying, don't do this to me, don't do this to me, don't do this to me. And yet, I thought I could fix her. You know, mm-hmm. I thought I could, I, you know, my love would be enough to change her. And yet, you know, we were married for 12 and a half years. Uh, she had a two-year-old little boy when we got married. And Gene was just the cutest little guy. I, I adopted him as my own, and we have this great relationship even to this day. Uh-huh. And then we had two girls of our own, and you know, just the most beautiful young ladies that can be you can have. But, but, you know, she started, you know, she started drinking during the course of our twelve and a half year relationship, mm-hmm. and you know, got to the point where it was out of control. Again, her verbal abuse didn't change. You know a lot of demeaning and you know diminishing and and again I was I I lived as a victim you know in this no voice tried to fix couldn't fix you know but I I lived just putting up with that as long as I could handle it but the curious thing that happened was when she got clean and sober it was a gift to me in the sense that I started going to Al-Anon meetings when she started going to AA meetings mm-hmm. okay and and at first I went to try and help her out because I was being a good, dutiful husband. Uh-huh. And, and so I went to try and help her, not because I had any need. After all, I was working in the field of addiction myself then, helping <laughs> many other addicts. Uh-huh. And I thought I could help her too, but I discovered I, I couldn't. But the blessing was I got into a recovery program and very soon discovered that it wasn't about her. It was about me. And that I needed help. That was the gift for me. But shortly after she got clean and sober, she decided she didn't want to be married to me anymore. Mm. 
And so that was the end of our, our marriage, 12 and a half years after it began. Wow. Very painful time. You know, I, I, as a Catholic, I valued marriage. I was, we were not supposed to get a divorce. And I tried everything I knew, but nothing would work. Um, even my own starting my own journey of recovery was not enough. And uh, later on, there were other reasons I discovered as to why she did not want to continue in the marriage. Mm-hmm. But, but it was a very painful, painful time. You know, the most painful was telling our children that we right. were no longer going to be together and going through that grieving process. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just very, very painful and difficult. David, one of the issues that uh, we probably need to talk about, because you've touched on it in several ways, is this whole aspect of when someone is victimized. One of the things that I've just been dealing with in my work right now is someone who had some adverse health outcomes. And so we would say they're a victim in a sense. You know, they've had health problems. I notice frequently that when someone has something bad happen or when they're actually victimized by someone else, there's this tendency that many people have to blame the victim. And I think it translates into our own experience too. If we're being victimized, we tend to somehow turn that on ourselves. You know, what am I doing wrong? Share with us a little bit about that from your own experience. Was that a a reality as you were going through these stresses in your marriage? Well, a part of what happened is I didn't so much blame myself mm-hmm. as negatively take it out on myself. And so what I mean by that is a part of my victim thinking was self-pity. Mm. Poor me. Isn't it awful that I have to live this way? You know, kind of that living in self-pity. So I lived as a victim and and people who live as victims tend to attract victimizers. Okay. And so uh-huh. that dynamic was clearly there that I attracted someone who would treat me that way. But what I had to do, because I thought I was doing well, I thought I was being a great husband, but I didn't see myself accurately. And so as I continued my journey after the divorce, I had to really take inventory, an honest inventory of myself. And I had to look and see how I contributed to the divorce. It wasn't just her. It takes two, right? And Mm -hmm. and I had to take a good, honest look at myself, at my victim dynamic, at my tendency to project blame onto her, not take responsibility for myself, you know, my my performance-based living, you know, which really didn't allow her to be her, you know, freely either. And so after the divorce, one of the things that I did as I took inventory is I wrote her a letter, an honest letter, taking responsibility for my part, what I could own in mm-hmm. in the relationship without blaming her, without anything about her. This was just about me apologizing, genuinely apologizing, and writing out the things that I had identified that made the marriage difficult for her. And I, and I sent it to her. I gave it to her. And, uh, and that was a, a very important part of my own journey of healing, journey of recovery, is being honest with me about me. 
rather than projecting blame uh, to her for her failings. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking as we're talking, Dr. Sidlacek, so many people can relate to the things that we're talking about. And I know there's a lot of folks who are relating. They're in difficult relationships. They've had difficult home lives. And they're saying, well, this guy's obviously moved on with his life. He's uh, apparently successful by the way that people would define success. You're a teacher. You're contributing. You're helping. You're sharing. We're really anxious to hear more of your story. And I'm assuming you're able to stay with us as we continue the show today? Absolutely. Great. Well, I want to encourage all of you who are tuning into today's show to stay tuned. We're going to be back with a lot more from Dr. David Sedlacek. You're going to hear a lot of practical things that can make a difference for you and for those you love. We'll be right back after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the second half of today's show. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest, Dr. David Sedlacek. Dr. Sedlacek is a man of many talents and an 
interesting, fascinating life journey. He is currently the chair of the Department of Discipleship and Lifespan Education at Andrews University. He is sharing with us not only his own story, but David, I think the most powerful thing is your story is a lot like all of our stories. We all go through challenges. We have relationship issues. Uh, whether we've chosen them or not, that's just the way life is. And you don't just teach people. You don't just share your story. You don't just empathize with people. You've also put out some very practical resources to help other people who are on this journey. So tell us a little bit about some of the things that you have out there that some of our listeners may want to take advantage of. We have written a book and a workbook to go with it. It's called Cleansing the Sanctuary of the Heart, Tools for Emotional Healing. And uh, it's a very practical book where we talk about uh, our experience with, with people that we've worked with over the years. And we take people through a journey of healing, starting with embracing your own story and and then looking at how you were wounded, and then how did you respond to that? And, you know, and, you know, are the things that you believe healthy or unhealthy about yourself and about life and about other people? And, and how have you, how have you survived? We look at structures of survival. And, and one of the things that we like to share with people is the tools that we use to survive are not the same tools that we need to use to thrive. Hmm but we've settled for those tools to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves safe. At least we think so. But in reality, those tools that we use to keep ourselves safe also distance us from healthy relationships with other people because it's all about protecting me. It's about me. And I put myself in this little box to survive instead of growing into the fullness of the person that I'm meant to be. Wow. So we try to help people learn to let those things go because they don't work well. Even our addictions, you know, don't work well. And I explained in my story, performance orientation and victim. Well, those are structures of survival, but they, they distance us from other people, from, from real intimacy. The thing that our hearts really long for, we, we, we rob ourselves of that through our survival mechanism. So, so what we do in our book is we try to take people through this this healing journey and teach them how to live health in healthy ways and, and how to have healthy boundaries and, and to live vibrant lives, you know? Um, and so, it, but it's a painful process because we have to face the truth about ourselves and our pain. And so we try to help people learn how to experience healing and comfort in those areas of, of pain in their lives as well. And, and there are many churches now who use these resources as a part of a healing small group ministry, for example. And, and so it, it's been a blessing. And so we have a website too, uh, where you can have access into how, for how to purchase these things. It's into his rest, um, dot org. Into Let me his, make sure I've got this correct. Into his rest. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Dot yes, org. Yeah, that's correct. Uh-huh. And so we have links to various re other resources on our website and, and uh, you know, links to it like a Facebook page and to our YouTube channel where we have all kinds of podcasts and resources that we have, that we, where we've written and also spoken. And, and so that's, that's a little bit about 
our ministry, my, my wife and I, her name is Beverly, and we've been in ministry together now since about 1990. Excellent. So I've got this down, intohisrest.org. And uh, for those of you tuning in, I'm just telling you, the first time I'm hearing about this, and even though uh, Dr. Sedlacek and I have crossed paths uh, in the past, David, I'll just be honest with you, I wasn't aware of all these great resources you have, and I'm already thinking about how I might like to use some of these things and some of the work I do. I sometimes lead out in small groups, and I have an interest in emotional healing as well. So thank you for putting that together. We do want to get back to your story, though, because we're already trying to connect the dots, a lot of us. We've heard you got to this point where you had what seemed like at least from maybe some outward perspectives, a good marriage. You've got three wonderful children, and all of a sudden everything crumbles. A lot of times people go through a situation like that, and they never pick themselves back up. Uh, They may do something rash, impulsive, that changes the course of their life or someone else's life. And yet you've shared with us already that you ultimately remarried. You're a college uh, university professor, so so tell us, uh, speak first, David, if you would, to someone right now who's going through a real difficult relationship issue. Maybe they're recently divorced or just broke up with someone they'd been with for many years. What words of encouragement uh, do you have there? Well, the word of encouragement I want to start with is be encouraged. You will get through it. There is hope. Other people have gone through the journey. I've gone through the journey. And it's possible for you to get through the journey too. Although there were days when I felt so heavy in my heart after the divorce that I felt like I wanted to drop through the the bottom of the floor, you know, and that's how heavy it was. I, I grieved. And so you have to go through a grieving process because it is a very real loss. Even if it was a a very difficult marriage, Mm. it still was something that you were connected to this person and, and there is a disconnection and that's that's cause for grieving. And so if you're going through that, you know, it's possible for you to get through it. There is hope. But I also learned a couple of other lessons that were really, really important along the way. And that was that I can only change myself. Mm. I'm only responsible for myself. I'm not responsible for my wife. I'm not responsible for another person. That's their journey. And so I've learned that a part of my healthy boundaries is manage what's mine. Don't try to manage what's not mine. I didn't cause my wife's addiction. I can't change my wife. I can't cure her. I can only work on me. And so I learned this concept called differentiation. Mm. Healthy differentiation, which means, you know, do I know, do I really know deep within me that I am precious and of infinite value? Do I know that? I didn't know that because, remember, my value was external based in what I did, not Mm -hmm. internal based on who I was. And there's a difference between being and doing. You know, being is just because I am, Mm -hmm. I'm precious. Mm -hmm. I'm of infinite value, not because of what I do. That was such an important lesson for me to learn. Uh 
I appreciate you sharing that. I think it's so relevant to what many people are dealing with today. And we so identify today with the group that we are a part of or what we're, what cause we're championing. And it seems like these things just have the potential often to divide us and then leave us feeling uh, often bankrupt because it doesn't matter. If you're looking for your value from other people, it just seems that, at least from my perspective, Dr. Sidlachik, you tell me otherwise, but it seems like if you're trying to please other people, sooner or later, you're not going to please some of those key people um, and you're going to be in for a real crisis of identity. That's absolutely right. You know, if if my sense of my own value comes from what you think of me, then I'm making you, in a very real sense, uh, my God. Hmm. You know, it's almost like I, I give you the power to determine my reality rather than taking that myself. You know, I have a right to my thoughts, to my feelings, to my opinions, to my political leanings or views. I mean, that's a part of what makes me up to be the person that I am. I'm responsible for those things. And it's important that I take responsibility for those things. And, and so having a healthy sense of my own value and worth gives me a sense of identity because we have this individuality force. Who am I alone? But then we also have this togetherness force. Who am I in relationship? Mm -hmm. But if I don't first figure out who I am alone and have a healthy sense of self, I'm going to attract someone who's not healthy into a relationship. And I'm going to give this person power in relationship to determine my reality how I feel and what I think, you know, is determined on how they feel and think about me, that's unhealthy. And so if I'm not healthy, I, I'm going to disconnect from them. I'm going to distance myself from them. I I'm going to build all these structures to keep myself safe in that relationship. And I choose not to do that anymore. Now, David, I know enough about your story that I realize that uh, even though we're talking about this sense of value and all you've shared with us, this Catholic background, I know that you no longer identify as a Catholic, but you're still very much uh, a God-focused person. And some of my listeners, as they're tuning in, I mean, they're on that same page. They're saying, yes, I believe there's a creator. I believe there's a God, a great spirit, however they define that. And that is is the the person that gives me value. I know you have worked with many people in churches, in faith-based uh, organizations, but you've also, through your involvement in Al-Anon and others, you've worked with people who would say, I don't believe there is a God. They're struggling with that, or they come from a different worldview. The basic question that I'm trying to get at is, is there a, a general approach to finding meaning and value that you could share with anyone? I mean, what is the take-home message, regardless of what someone's spiritual walk has been like? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things that I embrace and learned on my recovery journey, and it is a 12-step recovery journey, is that everyone has a right to a God of their understanding. You know, my spiritual walk is my own, and I treasure it and value it, but it's not for me to impose upon anyone else. But spirituality gives meaning to everyone's life, however they define that spirituality. But we need to have a spiritual journey of some kind or other. And so to be on this walk, on this spiritual walk, 
means for me that I'm not walking alone, hmm. that there is this God, as I define him, or this spiritual presence that is with me, uh, walking on the journey with me. And what that helps me with is I can be then on this spiritual journey with another human being as well. Mm -hmm. I can join them on the journey and we can both journey together and discover the richness that uh, of their journey. And they can appreciate the richness of my journey. And, and sometimes what I can do is share some things that have been a part of my journey that maybe they haven't understood. And I can share that with them and they can appreciate that. And, and yet I can learn from them as well as we're on the spiritual journey together. And what it does is it, it gives substance, it gives meaning to life. And that's something that I greatly appreciate. David, this is uh, such practical stuff. I know there's uh, so much more that could be said. We do have a final segment with David. If you're uh, having a step away, I hope you don't have to leave because our last segment is going to be especially powerful. But you can tap into uh, Dr. Sedlacek's wisdom at his website, intohisrest.org, intohisrest.org. But we've got, like I said, a final segment coming up right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 
That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Dr. David Sedlacek, he's my guest. He's a professor at Andrews University in Berrien Springs, Michigan, and he's been sharing with us his own journey as well as practical lessons that have grown out of that. David, uh, I know we've left everybody kind of hanging as we've been dialoguing and drawing some lessons from your experience, but you went through a painful divorce. You were talking about the pain of that, and you didn't stay mired in that loss. Uh, as a health professional, I have met people. You know, they go through a, a death, a divorce, and it seems like they never get back on track. That was not the case for you. Help us. What happens from there that uh, ultimately brings you where you're at right now? Well, there's this factor called resilience. Mm. And uh, I happen to be pretty resilient. In other words, I don't let things keep me down. And I knew I wanted to be married again. And and so um, I've been praying. And I've been praying. And, and, and so, you know, Lord, I wanted to be married again. So about a year and a half later, um, I was invited to come in as an addiction specialist and help in a mental health hospital, a psychiatric ward for adolescents to build in a recovery program for adolescents there. And so I went in the very first day and, you know, they got to let you in because it's a psych unit. So that you have to buzz in and someone has to come and open the door. And and so this person opened the door and she was an African-American woman. And she said, oh, you're Sedlicek, huh? We've been expecting you. And I said, no, my name is Sedlacek. And she said, no, it's Sedlacek. Look at this, Sedlacek. That was my introduction to Beverly. And so I had never thought about, you know, marrying a Black woman or dating a Black woman. But she was so full of life and sparkly and so sanguine. And it's like, you know, and me with my my melancholy self, you know, it's like I was really attracted to to that part of her. And so... And so we got to talking and sharing and it's like, oh, she loved God. You know, she was a God lover like me. And that really attracted me to Beverly. Uh-huh. And, and so one day we were at lunch together and I got up the courage to say, um, would you go out with a white guy? Have you ever dated a white guy? And she said, well, yes, I have. And, and I said, oh, I got hope. Would you go out with me? And so we did go out and uh, had a very nice time walking in a park and spending several hours together. And of course, I was even more drawn to her. And But, you know, she, she really didn't want to marry a white guy because her prototype was a, a man like her dad, you know, dark skinned, chunky black guy. And, and, and so I took her on another event, you know, for a date. Um, we had lunch and then went on an intervention prep. And again, in recovery, you know, it's an inter- an intervention is trying to encourage someone to, to, who doesn't want to go to treatment to get into treatment. Uh-huh. And so I took her on this intervention prep. And, you know, that was very, very meaningful for her. And on the way home, she heard this voice saying, this is the one I have for you. And she was kind of upset because I wasn't in the right package. And, and yet, when she considered me, I had a lot of the characteristics that she really wanted in a husband just the wrong size, the wrong color, whatever. So, <laughs> so she began considering me. And, and then a couple of months later, I really was talking to God and I was impressed to ask her to marry me. You know, mm-hmm. God really kind of gave me the green light. And, 
And so I asked her to marry me. Now, I was a Catholic, but she wasn't. She was an Adventist. And it's like, and so when I asked her, she said, well, what should I say, Lord? And he said, say yes. So she said, yes. And I sat her down and I said, you know, we're not going to have sex before marriage. We're going to maintain our chastity. And when we get married, you can have, you know, we can get married at your church and I'll invite my favorite Catholic priest and he can come and officiate, you know, with your pastor. And it's like, oh, you know, so the next day she called me up and said, you know, I can't marry you as long as you're a a, a Catholic. And I said, well, why not? You know, I didn't know this, this thing about, you know, and, and she kind of explained it a little bit to me. And I said, well, why did you say yes then? And so anyway, I had to adjust, you know, I thought, oh, I'm not going to marry you. Just, you know, just, be, you know, I'm, I'm not going to marry you just to become an Adventist, you know, I won't do that. But I began then studying and really understanding the word and was drawn. I, you know, I began taking some Bible studies and ultimately decided to become an Adventist. And only after that did we plan our wedding. Hmm. And we've been married now for over 35 years. Wow. And we have a son of our own, Michael, and he's a firefighter paramedic living down in in Huntsville, Alabama. And she had a son, by the way, she got pregnant at age 13 and had Eric at 14. So we have five children, 12 grandchildren, one great grandchild. Wow. He's had us on this journey ever since. It's just amazing, amazing journey. Well, I appreciate your story so much because it reminds us that there is healing. There is hope. I think the other thing I love about your story is, uh, you basically said that you were following a creator, a God who just kept shattering stereotypes, the things that you knew, the things that you thought were right, how you thought you were supposed to live. And uh, you're really challenging us, I think, uh, Dr. Sedlacek, that what we think uh, is important may not be all that important. There are some things that uh, we may have grown up thinking we needed to prioritize, but we still need to be relearning. And it doesn't matter what age we are, does it? No, I'm always on this journey of, of learning. And we learn, as you said, cultural values, beliefs that we have based upon our cultural upbringing, our family of origin. Also, we believe things about ourselves, about life, about people, you know, based upon those things. And a lot of times those are what we call dysfunctional thoughts, even dysfunctional emotions or uh, self-defeating behaviors. And we learn to live those ways and internalize those as if they are the fullness of how we're supposed to live, when in reality, they're not. They're unhealthy, dysfunctional. And, And I've learned that I've had to challenge my own cultural beliefs. Being married to a Black woman as a white guy, I had to face my own, my own prejudices and my own white privilege. And really honestly look at that. And that was hard, but I had to be honest about that and and about my own self-defeating thinking and self-destructive behaviors. And I've had to really honestly look at those things. And sometimes even when they have come up against my own cultural background, I've had to really face that, honestly. Is that in harmony with the values in which I truly want to live that Mm -hmm. I find from the God that I choose to believe? And so it's challenging. So, David, as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about our dialogue, I know there's a lot of folks who've tuned in today who can relate to a lot of the things we've been talking about. 
And they may be asking the question as we're winding down in the show, well, where do I go from here? I mean, it's great to know that there is a, uh, they all lived happily ever after, so to speak, at the end of the story, potentially. But um, how do I get there? Do you have any practical guidelines right now for people that are struggling, either with some childhood traumas, whether it's relationship issues in life, whether they're just looking for direction? Where do you point them? Well, first of all, face your story. Hmm. It is what it is. And it's important to embrace it. We tend to deny our pain and deny our story because it was painful. But no, dig it up, face it. Take it out of the garbage can. Number two, even embrace the pain of your story, because mm. in embracing the pain, you can then find healing that you'll never find if you don't embrace your story. And learning how to self-soothe yourself and your trauma, how to relate to it and say, you know, am I being triggered right now? You know, am I really in danger now? Learning how to take deep breaths, find soothing in nature, for example, many people do by connecting with your God, your creator. Many people find comfort and healing for the pain of their story in those ways, but find ways of finding comfort and healing by embracing your story and the trauma of your story. And then honestly, look, how did I respond to this? Are the ways in which I'm responding helpful to me or are they self-destructive to me? Mm. Mm-hmm. And really honestly looking at that and and sometimes partnering with someone else on this journey of recovery who maybe can see you more objectively than you can see yourself. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can come through a 12-step program with a sponsor, you know, or other mentors on the journey, or through therapy and counseling, you know, all of those different things, but also being very open and honest with your creator, you know, with the God that you believe. And trust that he is going to lead you on this path or journey of healing. Well, David, this is just uh, really powerful stuff. I appreciate your sharing, taking the time out of your very busy schedule. We do have to step away. And I know many people are going to want to contact uh, you, at least connect with your materials. Give us uh, one more time your website. It's intohisrest.org. Thank you so much. Dr. David Sedlacek of Andrews University. Again, you can get more material, free materials there, as well as find where you can purchase some of his resources, intohisrest.org. I'm Dr. David DeRose. For all of us at American Indian and Alaska Native Living, I'm wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One. The Native American Radio Network.